So this is the Kingdom of God series, continuing on chapter 3, Major Biblical Themes, and this is chapter 3i. I promise you we will not get to chapter 3z, but uh, um, we are going to be actually doing two more weeks on creationism, so that will be a total of four weeks on creation. First of all, I want to just say I appreciate everyone who made it here for the 930 meeting, since uh, we have a couple inches of snow, and... Uh, that presents some challenges. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, this is a topic that I really love and that I, that's near my heart, but actually I've never taught on this um, except at uh, secular universities for classes. So this is actually, there's two of the outlines that you have in front of you are from my search for the Utopia class. At Sinclair Community College, and I am going to save some space by reading some definitions off of it, off of the handout called Introductory Vocabulary, and I will review, review or refer a little bit to the worldview outline on that's on one side of your page and the epistemology outline on the other side of your faith. Now, um, I know that. Uh, that J.P. Moreland in his great book called Love God with All Your Mind uh, talks about why uh, Protestant Christianity became anti-intellectual after the Civil War. And I know it's not very common to have this much vocabulary and theology and so forth uh, in a, in a Christ message at a church. And, you know, we think it's normal to spend 12 years studying to be a doctor but you're all called to be something more than a doctor. You're called to actually bear fruit for Jesus Christ and disciple the nations uh, in, in every area of wisdom and knowledge and life experience there is. And the training and st study that we go through should be much more serious than what you would take to get something like a doctorate. So, uh, now, you can't get there all at once. I know if we took that serious of approach to the scriptures, everybody would quit. But uh, just, to, uh, I, just to get your mind around this a little bit, 1 Peter 3.15, which should be in there somewhere, it's about halfway down the first page, says, set apart, sanctify means to set apart to God, Christ as the Lord that is the Lord of all creation, the Alpha, the Omega, the one who be, the beginning and the one end, the one who said, let there be light and there was life. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Sanctify that Christ, a much bigger view of Christ than is current in the church today, as Lord in your heart. And out of the mouth, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Make that the direction, the thing that sets the direction and the course of your life. Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart and always be ready to make an apologia, apologia, uh, a, a defense. That word appears nine, eight, I'm sorry, eight times in the New Testament. And Paul uses it six times. No, I'm Paul uses it five times, it's twice in the book of Acts, and then Peter uses it this once, but it's normally transferred, a, translated a defense. So Paul uses it when he says, no one uh, stood with me when I made my first defense uh, before apparently Caesar or whatever it seems he's referring to. It seems like that's, he's not referring to Felix or Agrippa, but later after he's sent to Rome. So a defense is the, is the idea for the hope that's in you. In other words, uh, some translations of the uh, New American Standard applies, implies in its literal notes that it, it means uh, an explanation or a justification. And, you know, so always be ready to explain about the hope that's in you. Why do you people live so crazy? Who would go out in uh, two inches of snow to church? And who would arrive an hour or two earlier to shovel the driveways? And who would get up and read their Bibles before they go to work? And who would confess their sins? And who would love their wife and stay faithful to her? And who would pay their tithes and pay their bills on time and be one of the best workers at your job? What kind of crazy people are you? 
Well, you're a Christ follower. I was talking to one of the elders of a wonderful church named Apex this week, and uh, he said, yeah, we stopped even, we don't even, if someone says they're a Christian, that means nothing to us. We just, we asked them, are you a Christ follower? You know, we tried trying to clarify, like, are you endeavoring to make Jesus the Lord of your life? And are, are you putting yourself in a community of Christians and a, in a way of studying the Bible and other things like that to become a follower of Christ? I like that. That was good. So uh, always being ready to make a defense for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and respect. One of the uh, great rebukes, uh, uh, as you, if you know me well, uh, I need to be rebuked quite often. Had to apologize to someone yesterday that I really sinned against. And uh, that's pretty common for me because uh, I was actually introduced once as a guest speaker when the guy said, uh, um, he introduced me, and this was a guy I had discipled for two or three years and uh, turned over the ministry in Bowling Green to him when I left. And and he introduced me when he had me back as a guest speaker by with the the version uh, the verse where no oxen are the manger is clean, but much increase comes through the strength of the off. And so I got up there and I said, "Yeah, so thanks a lot." You're kind of saying with Brother Greg, there's a lot of manure, <laughs> and uh, but but overall, it's probably worth it. <laughs> That's a fair description of me. But uh, um, so. Uh, anyway, one of my most embarrassing, uh, things with this first Peter three fifteen concept was actually one time I, we were going door to door in the dorms in Bowling Green and we would always ask people what they believed before we would talk to them. What was their religion? What do they believe in? So I was talking to some guy that, uh, he was saying much more far out things than what I had experienced during my LSD phase. I mean, he was talking about like crystals and star guides and, you know, traveling the planets and, and, uh, why, you know, you have to reverse gravity and stand on your head and, and whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and I started to laugh and, uh, he rebuked me and said, you know, you're not going to make many converts if you laugh at what other people believe. And, uh, and I said, I'm sorry, just had not heard anything quite like that, or at least anyone who re was realistic about it. But I probably should not have laughed. Um, so, with, uh, you know, uh, one thing I love about if you're a fan of Tim Keller at all, I really like how much he respects the views of the unbelievers of our age and the leaps of doubt that they have uh that they have made postulates and axioms in their life. So let's get into this. What we're going to do is uh, I was going to basically, you know, we've uh, look, if you look at Roman numeral three, two, uh, Roman numeral one, our uh, series verses, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God would not have us pray for something that he's not having us work toward. Also, God's will is to manifest his kingdom in all the earth. As truly as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord uh, I believe that's something that an anticipates and leads up to the coming of Christ, not something that can only be happen after some cataclysmic rescue because the world, the flesh, and the devil are beating the snot out of us. Um, so, and your life will, will be conformed to what you're really believing on these things. So we looked at creation scriptures the first week. Because I wanted you to see that a lot of people think of creationism as a Genesis issue, but it's a major theme of every major section of the Bible. Uh, John gave me a book for Christmas, the previous Christmas, on Paul by a wonderful writer named N.T. Wright. And one of his chapters is on, uh, he's, he's analyzing for three chapters the major themes of Paul, and one of them is creation and covenant. And uh, why creation and covenant are all throughout all of Paul's writings. And creation is a big major theme of the prophets. It's a major theme of the Psalms and so forth. So that's why we did that. Um, last week, we looked at creation's foundational significance. I want you to understand that the primary attack against the Christian faith in modern times is on creationism, and rightfully so, because Jesus quotes from Genesis 1 and 2, as if they're fact. 
So Jesus, if, if they're not, then Jesus, how could you worship him? If he was just outright wrong. And there's, you know, many more reasons than that, of course, that we went into that. You can get the, the podcast or the CD. It can be requested if you don't like podcasts. So today I want to begin a two-week thing about creationism versus scientism. And uh, that's kind of this week. And then next week we are going to look at some major uh, evolutionary fallacies and some major leaps of doubt. Now, I've read lots of books on this in the 70s and 80s. Frankly, I haven't stayed up with it um, because, you know, the world's still the same. But uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, nothing is changing. No. Um, you know, I'm not an expert. I'm not a scientist. What I'm going to do really is just give you some of the broad brush ideas of why there's some real difficulties with the idea of evolution. Um, if you were, if you do a Google search, which I did, um, spent a whole long time on that about a year ago, on books on creation, evolution, and the debate thereof, you will find there's uh, tens of thousands of pro-evolution books and tens of hundreds of pro-creation books. There's no limit. You could never read all of them even in one lifetime. But one of the fastest growing areas of the whole subject is evolutionists attacking other evolutionists and saying, we know there's no God, and we know evolution's right, and the theories of evolution that are being advanced are not very believable. We got to do better. And uh, that's a major growing theme in, among the evolutionists is they're kind of attacking each other and saying, hey, we know that there's no God and we know that material is eternally existent. We know that life spontaneously generated and we know there's some upward mobile function, you know, selection of the change of species. We know all this is true, but we're not getting any, we're not coming up with any proofs for this. And, and we really need to. So... I want to at least, what I really want to do in the next two weeks is just give you some starting points that if you want to be able to share the gospel with people of our day effectively, you can at least start to understand the worldview they're coming from. And if you get interested in these things, uh, at least you'll understand by the end of this, uh, the difference between what's called evidential apologetics and presuppositional apologetics. That all sounds like hard at this point, but it won't be hard, I promise you, in two weeks. Okay, so let's get into this. I want to first start by just reading some creation scriptures. I had meant to uh, ask Jason to read these so I wouldn't comment on them, but I forgot to do so. So i um, try not to comment as best I can. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, baseball verse, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, compare that to those other verses. Psalm 100, verse 3. No, there's a type of knowledge. Uh, no, don't, don't guess, don't make a leap of faith. Know that the Lord is God, himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So you see both covenant and creation tied together, as they always are. And the Bible says this is something you can know. Hebrews 11, 1, 3, and 6. Now faith, not later. Now faith is the assurance or substance in the, uh, I put uh, kind of a combination of ESV and uh, New American Standard, ESV and New King James here. Now faith is the assurance, substance of things hoped for, the conviction, New King James evidence, of things not seen. It's a type of evidence. Faith is a kind of evidence. We're going to look at four views of epistemology, which is a really simple introduction to a to a, a branch of knowledge, and it, that won't be so complicated in another two weeks. Um, but uh, we're going to see that faith is a type of evidence, and faith is not like hoping certain ideas are true. Faith has be become an academic uh, matter in Greek thinking, modern Christianity, but faith is not at all uh, that. Faith is a knowing because you know who you know, and he knows you, and he, is, and he, he has convinced you that he is right. 
uh, and you know that he is the best evidence. Uh, in in, in um, law, there's a concept, and if you study the better laws, you know, like Perry Mason, the better shows that have have uh, good writers that have real law, and then one of the things they'll say, objection, that's not best evidence. That's not principles of best evidence. Uh, faith is the best evidence. Uh, we'll see this. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that which is, that which is seen was not made out of things which are visible. That's a concept called creation ex nihilo that those of you taking the theology class will be studying, out of nothing. So because either you believe that material eternally existed or you believe that God eternally existed. There is no in-between. People try to be in-between. All of fallen men try to live in between those extremes. But if you're going to believe that he didn't create it all, then you have to make the assumption that nothing was that something was created out of nothing. It's logically inescapable. If if the, if if God does not exist, then there was no nothing except material that that organized itself in in some evolutionary manner. Then you're assuming that something was created by nothing, which is not very logical. And so we'll see. Uh, without faith, it's impossible to please God, for whoever draws near to God must believe that he is. The Bible never argues for the existence of God. It just assumes it. And all men are wired to know that it's true. And he rewards those who seek him. Luke 16. Oh, wait. I guess we're in 2 Timothy. This is a very important verse. I, this probably could be my very favorite verse. I, I love this verse. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. Why do you do all this crazy stuff, Christians? Christians do all kind of crazy stuff by from the world's point of view. Why do you do it? By, you know, Paul is saying, for this reason, I suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom, not what, whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. He's the one that convinced me. He's the evidence that I needed. Luke 16, 31, he, but he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded or convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This will, that verse has to do with what's called evidential apologetics versus presuppositional apologetics, and I'm a fan of both, but you need to understand that um, if you, we're going to study what's called historical legal proof in the next couple weeks. And from using historical and legal proof, the resurrection from the dead is one of the most proven facts in the history of the world. So what? That's not going to make them repent. So you need to understand, gee, they could be, you know, the truth of the matter is most people won't even consider the evidence. Um, I have to admit that before I came to Christ, and I saw this more clearly after I came to Christ because I was blind and I didn't see very well, but I began to realize I'd been running from God for years and I was hoping there was no God. The reason I was philosophically agnostic uh, is because I didn't want there to be a God because deep down in my spirit, although in, in places that were subconscious to me, I knew that, I, that uh, if there were a God, I couldn't be God anymore. And I couldn't have the illusion of freedom, which the Bible calls bondage, of doing what I wanted to do, how I wanted to do it, where I wanted to do it, with no one telling me what to do. Except I didn't realize that the world, the flesh, and the devil were increasingly telling me what to do, and I was increasingly addicted to my sin. And I didn't realize what real freedom is. If You've got to get that concept if you're going to lead anyone to Christ in our day and age. Our culture worships the illusion of freedom. And the younger they are, the more... Uh, the more millennial they are, the more they want to do what they want to do, how they want to do it, why they want to do it, when they want to do it. They want to have sex with whoever they want, however they want, you know, telephone poles, animals. It's crazy. They want to do any kind of drug when they want, where they want, how they want, and so forth. And they perceive freedom is being the doing of every impulse that comes to them. If they want to get mad and beat up their wife, then if, and that feels good, then they want to do that. 
They want to do whatever they want to do, how they want to do it, why they want to do it, and they think that's freedom. They don't realize that the noose of bondage is ever tightening more around them because sin becomes a compulsion and an addiction. And if you're ever going to lead anyone to Christ, you have to help them see their slavery to self-centeredness and the hubris and pride. And um, I, I have a dear friend at Wright State who was a Christian when he came to Wright State, and he grew up in a somewhat nominal uh, mediocre sort of church. I won't say the denomination, but um, he was a Christian. In fact, he visited our church once and th thought it was a little too much for him and too, too few people. And if it was really valid, there'd be more people and this kind of thing. And, and besides, he was a worship leader in two different uh, groups, like a, a youth group at his church and the church and so forth. And he said, I'm a really strong Christian. By the end of his freshman year, he's been one, he's, ever since then, he's been one of the most committed, zealous atheists I've ever met. He is passionate for atheism, and he's preaching it, and he's on the Facebook doing it, and he goes to the uh, some of the Christian groups. Uh, there's one about apologetics called Ratio Christi, and he likes to go there because, uh, frankly, they don't have anyone that's that trained, and so he can he can you know really look you know, his newfound intellectual prowess of science and, and all this. And he's just like a little kid. He, I, I'm, I love the guy. He's like a teenager who thinks he knows a lot because he read two books. Um, and uh, he's, uh, in, and you know what, I suggested that he read uh, a couple books. And I, I threw out some authors who, uh, you know, read like six books a day when they were alive and uh, who wrote hundreds of books or dozens of books and who are known, were known as great scholars and, and so forth. And he said, well, I looked that guy up on the internet and he believes in six-day creationism, so he must be an idiot, so I'm not going to look at any of his stuff. That's kind of where we're at in our culture. So he wouldn't listen to the arguments or consider them nor read any books. You know why I went to a secular university? I went to a secular university because I wanted to get a master's degree from their side. You'll always find the most zealous Christians on secular university campuses. Not that we shouldn't have Christian colleges. Uh, but we need some radical Christians. All right, for Psalm 14. Uh, wait, um, so John 16, 8, very important verse. But he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, this is a type of knowledge, will convict, which actually the, the Greek word can also be translated convince, the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He'll convince the world. Like that quote from Spurgeon, I'm always reading you that the Holy Spirit would never suffer the impunity to be attributed to his name, that he was not able to convert the world. That's why I'm not an escapist when it comes to millennialism's physicians and so forth, because it doesn't honor God very much, nor does it take faith or commitment. Psalm 14, 1 through 4, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven and on the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have been corrupt. They're, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers? Now, hopefully you recognize those verses as being quoted by Paul in Romans 3, 10, 11, and 12. Um, in a comment about the word fool... One thing you need to understand is that every word has its denotative meaning and its connotative meaning. We've talked about this before many times, so I hope I'm not boring you. But the denotative meaning uh, is what it actually means, taking into account you know, its etymology and things of this nature and its roots and so forth. Uh, the, the connotative meaning is emotional ideas that have come, behind, that have come to be associated with it. So I would not uh, quote this verse to an unbeliever without some explanation. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Because a fool is like a put down. But fool, biblically, is just uh, all of us have been fools. I say all the time, the reason I read a proverb, chapter of Proverbs a day, the first several years I was a Christian, 
was because in 85% of the verses, I was the fool, not the wise man. And uh, I'm hoping that ratio has changed over the years. We'll let God be the judge of that. Some of you, I'm sure, are convinced it hasn't and are praying for me to continue to read Proverbs and maybe actually get changed by them. But, uh, you know, uh, the truth of the matter is a fool is just someone who is uh, following the dictates of their fleshly heart, which is to suppress the truths of God in unrighteousness, to run from the existence of God. That's all that that is. Because God has left himself, Psalm 19, among others, so many witnesses in the creation. Paul also brings out, he brings that out in Romans 1. Uh, Romans 2, he brings out that God has left himself a witness in your conscience. Every one of us knows that since we were a little kid in a high chair, we have been excuse-making, blame-shifting, and rationalizing and defiling our conscience because that's what our sin nature does. I love to tell the story of my dear daughter, Carla, who's not here to defend herself, when she was in her high chair, still in diapers, and we had never yet once said you have to eat what we're putting. She wasn't old enough to say you got to eat this or that. You know, you kind of let them eat what they want when they're little kids up to a certain point. But for some reason, when Catherine went into the uh, kitchen, she was out in the dining room and she didn't know I could see her. She started hiding the pieces of chicken under her diaper. <laughs> I because she didn't want to eat the chicken. And we had never even said, you have to eat what's on your plate. It's just that deception comes so easily to us. Did you ever notice how well the kids can master when they get with other kids the concept of mine? But they have so much trouble with sharing, right? And man's basically good. Um, you know, mine, mine, mine. There's a famous Daffy Duck commercial or cartoon about that. You should see it, that one. Um, John... John 9, 35 through 41. Boy, all I'm going to do is get through these scriptures today. I probably won't get into any of these definitions. Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Uh, this is after he healed the blind man and he was thrown out by the Pharisees and so forth. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say your sin remains, since you say you're, uh, you're not blind, your sin remains. I must have cut out a couple of words. I'm having some problems with the cursor just jumping to arbitrary places. It be, you know, the, 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 the Bible basically says this. If you think you see, you're blind. When, once you begin to realize how much you don't see and admit it before God, then you can start to see. And in Christ is the life and the light of men. And you can only see through him. There's a reason why God, every Old Testament, every miracle in the New Testament, except casting out demons and, he, and healing the eyes of those born blind was done by the prophets of the Old Testaments. So the one that, that God reserved for Christ is he healed the eyes of someone born blind. No one had done that before. And he did it on several occasions because God was tells us things through story and history. And he's, as we say, he's so sovereign that he actually writes his story in the actual literal historical events. Uh, and uh, he was telling us that only that all of us are born blind and only Jesus can open the eyes of someone born blind. That's one of the reasons why you want to share the gospel a lot, because the truth of the matter is you can water and sow, but only God can cause the growth anyway. You could, you know, they are, people say, I led so-and-so to Christ. Nonsense. You were uh, blessed by God to be there like a midwife to help catch him. <laughs> hopefully, and as you grow in the Lord, hopefully you drop less of them. I still drop too many. Okay, so... <laughs> uh, you know, God could do a lot if I wasn't if I wouldn't just mess it up so much. I'm gonna go a little bit late, but this is probably stuff that's worth it, and it snowed today, so and John's gonna go late too. So we'll probably get out of church at twelve thirty instead of twelve, and we'll probably live through it. Um, 
I wanted to add that I, I actually forgot to add a verse that I was thinking of in Matthew 11 where Jesus says, you know, we always know the part about in verse 28 where he says, uh, I'll take my yoke upon you and so forth. But we don't read the verses right before that, verse 25, where he says, Father, I thank you, a Lord of heaven and earth, that you re have hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to babes, for thus it was well-pleasing in your sight. You know, the things of God are for those who are humble and receive them like babes. As simple as that. Uh, those who think they're so smart usually are not even living in a parallel universe. <laughs> it's maybe perpendicular or something. But uh, we're going to talk about worldviews and the universes that you live in uh, in the next couple of weeks. Oh, Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Proverbs 25, 2 just to balance this all out, it's glory. Uh, it's the glory of God to conceal ma a matter. Things is ESV. A matter is at the New American Standard. But the glory of kings is to search a matter out or things out, ESV. And finally, Romans 1, 18 through 23 and 28 through 31. You should read, of course, the first three chapters of, of Romans, which is Paul's explanation of man's fallenness. For the wrath of God is, of course, I know there are some uh, some sections of the church today that don't even believe in the concept of the wrath of God, except for the problem is, is the, the phrase, the wrath of God appears, I forget how many times in the New Testament, but quite a few. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. That's why there's no, there's no atheists in foxholes. All atheists, the word a is a prefix for against. Atheists are are running from God so deeply that they hate Him, and they're try, they're God deniers despite the fact that they know there's a God. That's why uh, you can go back and find this on DJ D, D James Kennedy's old sermons if you know who he was. Uh, cried the day he died. I love, I love that guy. Uh, but. Uh, he did, did a whole sermon once uh, just quoting famous, famous atheists who cried out to God for mercy, mercy on their deathbed. Many of the most famous in, in atheists in history that advanced the anti-Christian modern ideas the most cried out for mercy and said, I'm, I can feel myself descending into hell. Oh, God, I was wrong. Save me, God, and so forth. You don't hear a lot about that. But it's a very documented fact. Um, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, you think there's no contradictions in the Bible, his invisible attributes have been cleanly, clearly seen. No, <laughs> uh, there's a contradiction right there. No, <laughs> how could the invisible things be clearly seen? No, uh, it's a play on words, of course. His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understand through what has been made so that they are without excuse. We love excuses. We learned them starting in Genesis 3. We're, we're expert excuse makers, blame shifters. That's, if you want to know what modern sociology and modern psychology is about, it's about blame shifting, excuse making, and rationalizing. That's the core ideas in it, actually. Um, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professors to be wise, they became PhDs. Um, no, wait, that's modern translation. Uh, sorry. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And just as they did not sit and see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper. And that's that part I threw in because it's important to see that this is there's, there's a myth of neutrality. But what we're going to see as we study a concept called presuppositionalism, fallen men are not neutral, not in their science, not in their logic, not in their studying of anything. Believe me, before I became a Christian, I was not neutral. I was trying to run from God. Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. I'm going to go past my time and see if I can't get into some of these 13 ideas or definitions. First of all, what is an ism? When you go to the university, uh, I would highly recommend a book by Charles Habib Malik called the, A Christian Critique of the University. 
Uh, Emily's uh, insightful critique, critique when we were discussing it once is that he's probably a little bit too afraid of science and this kind of thing. And so m probably not as redemptive as, 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 as the ancient church was uh, in, in a kind of, a, you know, like meeting the challenges head on and conquering them and attacking them because God's into the restoration of all things. He wants us to recapture and take dominion of everything, not be scared of it. I'm all for Christian schools, but I think what you need to do is train your kids through Christian schools till they're ready to be shot as an arrow at the heart of the enemy. At some point, you need to go to the secular school and, and go get them uh, when you're ready. Don't send them too early, but get them ready and send them. Equip them and anoint them and say, Jesus said, go. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so in, go into all the world. All right. So an ism is just an integrated system of beliefs, religious, political, or otherwise scientific, founded on presuppositions or presupposed worldview. And that worldview is built on what we're going to study in a minute called axioms, postulates, and paradigms. It's built on assumptions. And what happens is every culture gets a series of assumptions that are basic, so basic to that culture that people jump to the conclusion that they're true, even though they're not provable, nor is there any possibility of any evidence for them. So, for instance, much of modern science is built on the concept there is no God. But let's, uh, and that's kind of interesting because if you go back and read a guy named Herbert Butterfield, The History of Modern Science, modern science got its impetus from the Reformation from guys that had a very distinctly Christian worldview. Even Sir Isaac Newton, who published his um, commentaries on Scripture posthumously, did so because he wasn't a Trinitarian, not because he thought there was no God or that science wasn't... Uh, subject to the queen of the sciences, uh, theology. He very much thought it was. It was because of theology that he thought sci that the scientific endeavor was possible. So uh, this hostility between science and theology comes out of man's sinful nature and man's presupposition, not out of reality. I hope you understand that. Um, so um, people have a worldview, which we're going to discuss in a minute. Everyone has one. You have one, whether you know it or not. Every You are made in the image of God, and you are inescapably religious. And so you have a worldview. And I'll jump to a worldview a little bit right now. So a worldview has three ideas in it. Number one, who or what is ultimately real. So when we read Paul's quote, we read Paul saying, I know him whom I have believed, right? Remember? But some worldviews don't have a who. We have to say who or what is ultimately real, because if you're a materialist, which is one of the four major worldviews, then you would have a what is ultimately real. And if you're a polytheist, you'd have lots of who's that are ultimately real. And if you're a pantheist, you have a what that's ultimately real. So... Uh, but everybody has ideas about who or what is ultimately real. And part of, part of the, um, the fallout, the cost of, of the increasingly man-centered Christianity that, that we've embraced uh, since the Civil War with the you know, uh, arriving of evangelical fundamentalism as, as an as a, as a improper antidote to, to, the, uh, to the mainstream liber liberalism, uh, when we really needed to go back to the ancient church and the reformed church's thinking and, 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 and attack it on a different foundation, but never, nevertheless, um, it, uh, everybody has a worldview and everybody is inescapably religious. And again, part of the cost is we've gotten more and more of a man-centered Christianity and less and less of a view of the sovereignty of God and so forth what people really have in their head is, yeah, there's a God out there, sort of, and I might, if I can't escape him altogether, I'll go to church, but I'm not about to be radically on fire for him with every aspect of my life. I'm going to 
find some balance that I choose of, of uh, you know, collaboration with the culture of materialism and Christianity. And I'm going to find that balance uh, and and I'm certainly not going to, and I'm going to choose a church that won't push me beyond my balance. That's why it's actually become like a major saying, find a church you're comfortable with. Could you imagine Jesus like coming up to disciples, follow me and I'll, bring, I'll make you really comfortable. <laughs> uh, you know, air conditioning, padded pews, uh, no snow. <laughs> you know, and certainly no concepts that really challenge you and make you squirm on the inside and get upset and hurt. Let me tell you, if it's not hurting you, it's not it's not helping you either. All right, so everybody has isms. Here, some examples of isms include things like Nazism, Marxism, evolutionism. And everybody has them. And what people don't see, one of the best uh, series of lectures I ever listened to, I have it on cassette tape that tells you how old I am. Got it for free from, uh, what is it called? Uh, Half Rice Books, the, la the lady there gives me, the she goes, nobody will listen to cassette tapes except you here. <laughs> so uh, so this, this series on world history that I listened to, that the basic theme, was it was called... Um, Utopia versus uh, terror in the 20th century. And he basically was documenting how all of these, and this guy was not a Christian, and he saw that in, he called, so he called, he called Nazism a secular political religion. But it's a religion. Fascism is a religion. Communism is a religion. Karl Marx, one of his best quotes in the Communist Manifesto is, human, communism is a humanism. Communism is built out of the concept of humanism, and it's a relatively logical system if you assume there is no God and all things are material, and uh, man has basically uh, not got any kind of sin problem or accountability to God and so forth. And because every one of these things that you need to understand about the isms is this. All isms have a doctrine of what's wrong with this world. Every philosophical system you study has to answer every because here, here's what you're inescapably made in the image of God and we all have a sense of justice and we all know deep down that it shouldn't be so mean and evil that we shouldn't live in a world where man's inhumanity to man is the major theme of all literature and all, of all time that people have you know Cain killed Abel when there was like maybe eight people <laughs> overcrowding um, you know so every every religion, communism, whatever, has somebody they blame for what the heck went wrong. And why are we so terrible to each other? Every, every philosophical system answers that question. Sigmund Freud in his Civilization and Discontents said the most, not, the most common characteristics that, that all men have you can't find anyone on the planet that doesn't have this, is a tremendous sense of guilt. But as a Christian, we put guilt because we have disobeyed the law of God. We have suppressed the knowledge of God. We have run from God. We are reprobate sinners in need of a Savior. We need more than forgiveness, which is what they offer in the churches today in the evangelical world. You need, a new, you need changed. I don't need counseling. Well, I do, but um, I need—I I don't need a reformation. I need a restoration. I need to be recreated every day by the power of His resurrection. A little dab won't do me. <laughs> Sorry, uh, it just won't. And I hope you can understand that for yourself as well, because you're on the beginning of being saved. So isms are religions. They have all the concepts of a worldview, and every worldview has a complete religion in it. Let me just cover a couple more, and then we'll quit. I'm already 12 minutes past my... Uh, I, I'm going to put some screen up here in case they shoot me. No. Uh, 
All right, so let's look at the thing I call my introductory vocabulary list for my class at Wright State. Oh, this is actually off my other class at Wright State called the human in image. Uh-oh, wrong one. But still got a few definitions. This is the wrong outline, but it's okay. Um, so uh, an ax look at number five and six. An axiom is a pro proposition or presupposition that is assumed without proof, a seemingly self-evident principle or one that is accepted as true without proof as the basis for argument, a postulate. For instance, uh, we're going to get into a concept called uniformitarianism. And uniformitarianism is the, the, the scientific, so-called scientism as a religion, the idea that all current laws of nature and, and processes of science, whether they be chemical, biological, physics, whatever, have always been the principles, and they've never changed. The problem is science is limited to hypotheses you can make and and tests you can come up with to, to, to uh, demonstrate whether the hypothesis is correct or incorrect, whether it works or doesn't work here and now. You can't assume because you can go to a science fair and, you know, stir up some pop in a bottle and shoot it off or with all the stuff you see at science fairs that, that you can do it today that you could have done it 10 million years ago. Because guess what? I'm glad I have Larry and Mr. Brown here with me today. Despite the fact that we have gray hair, we're really not that old. We weren't there. <laughs> so I, science can tell me nothing about what the laws of physics and science were uh, 5,000 years ago or even 2,000 years ago, except if I use what we're going to study is called historical and legal proof, and I can document that somebody did these tests and wrote about it. So I can know the scientific ideas of a Copernicus or a Bacon because he wrote them down and I can read them, but I can't know if the principles of science were working. And one, one mistake that a lot of people make is because if you read Sir Isaac Newton more carefully, Sir Isaac Newton came up with the idea that was very revolutionary. It was a paradigm shift. We'll talk about what that means next week. But... Um, he came up with the idea that um, the, the, the laws of physics and chemistry and biology and so forth that were, especially physics, he was more interested in physics than anything else, and, and which led him to also be interested in astronomy. But the same laws that work in our atmosphere work outside the Earth's atmosphere throughout the universe. Now, that was not believed until Sir Isaac Newton. They thought when you left the Earth's atmosphere, uh, you got a whole new set of laws of science and physics and everything else, and he postulated that they continue to work beyond our, our, the Earth's atmosphere. But people wrongfully assume that he assumed that they have always done so. Because that assumes there is no God and he can't change the laws whenever he wants and that's why you get people like the Enlightenment thinkers. Thomas Jefferson, for example, wrote his Jefferson Bible because he couldn't allow for any miracles or anything that was anti-supernatural, that was against the current principal laws of science as he understood them, because, of course, he was God in his mind, as all fallen men are. He wasn't particularly any more God in his mind than most fallen men. But uh, he is because of that, he wrote up called the, you can still buy it today, I have one. It's called the Jefferson Bible, and it's really thin. And uh, it's all the parts of the New Testament he liked. <laughs> because they were all the parts that have no miracles in them. And it, you should read it, you should have one. In fact, you should contrast it to your Bible, because it will make you rethink Christianity. Because if we don't have miracles, we don't have Christianity. Period. If God doesn't heal, cast out demons, speak in tongues, prophesy, know things that no one could know except by the Spirit of God and so forth, and if that's not happening, then we do not have biblical Christianity. And if you are not walking with God into that realm, I would encourage you to cry out to God for mercy and get on that path. Do the studies to get baptized in the Spirit as a starter, but go beyond the baptizing in the Spirit and start to prophesy and start to fast and pray for, for faith 
because God is in the mountain moving business. And guess what? You don't have to worry about it. You can do nothing. I've never done one little miracle. So, well, I'm going to stop there because we're way past time. And uh, next week we'll do the backside of this, and I'm going to define all of these things. Then look uh, where it says upcoming, uh, upcoming at the last part of the outline. That'll probably be two weeks from now now. I'm going to stay on this for just a little while, even though it's part of, you know, I'm trying to do the Kingdom of God series. But uh, you, you need to not be intimidated. And frankly, a little bit of education can help you understand. They're making tremendous leaps of doubt because they're highly motivated to do so. And we will, we will go through some of the fallacies and leaps of faith in evolution. Do you know that if evolution is true, then at some point, life had to come from non-life. It's called spontaneous generation. Guess what? Millions and millions. You know, Sam, remember we had some discussions when you were working at Arby's and you were like, saw that number of gross and that number net and you were like what a big gap what's that all about <laughs> uh, that's because they steal from you and the part of what they're funding is all kinds of scientists trying to create life out of non-life and they're not even close and every time you hear they're gonna be close it fizzles and maybe someday they'll somehow do it i don't know it's not, my faith wouldn't fall if they did, but I'm pretty sure they're not gonna. Because they're not God. And they can't just say, let there be. I've said, let there be a lot of times and then nothing really happened. So, and uh, so, you know, except if I was moved by the Holy Spirit. So, which happens occasionally. Uh, if we're trying to make it less occasionally. So, do, I hope we at least get that much, uh, and uh, I'm available after church today for questions on this stuff and everything like that, but um, I think I'm going to spend a few weeks on this so you can understand that that um, there's not a whole lot of evidence for evolution, and uh, it's not something you need to be scared of.